You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1 where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the second Limited Upside podcast of this week, bonus episode. And we have to have a bonus episode. Uh, I'm Mike Prada here with Blue Wire. We have to have a bonus episode because something monumental happened last night. Again, I don't know what day it is. I never know what day it is. Last night was September 15th. Something monumental happened last night, and that is the Denver Nuggets won a game seven. We're not going to talk too much about the team they beat. That's not gonna. That's not a political statement. That's not a statement on the state of media and what the real story is. We just figure you're gonna get a lot of that stuff from other places. This podcast is gonna be all about what the Denver Nuggets accomplished: second straight three-one deficit that they overcame to beat the LA Clippers, it advanced to the conference finals for the first time since 2009, I believe. Yeah, that was it. That's the voice of Adam Mares. He has <laughs> been a Denver Nuggets writer for a very long time. Now you are the vice president of creative production at DNVR Sports, which is this big Denver sports media company. What would you call DNVR Sports exactly? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's like a lifestyle. It's a, a sports and culture and lifestyle company in Denver. Well, it's a very cool new venture, and Adam's been around this Nuggets team for a very long time. We also have Ben on the line. Ben, how are you? You're also in Colorado right now? That's right. Yeah, I am. And I like to think a lot of the Nuggets' success over the last three days is um, in part due to my presence in the state of Colorado. <laughs> yeah. It has nothing to do with Nikola Jokic, nothing to do with Jamal no. Murray, nothing to do with anything going on. It's just that Ben Epstein is in the state. I'm sure that'll make Denver Nuggets fans feel great. Um, you emanate good vibes. I'm a very positive sports fan. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps they looked at you and said, that's how we shouldn't behave. And they learned. Um, but seriously, though, the Denver Nuggets, another 3-1 comeback, improbable comeback. And look, Ben and I, we watch a lot of Denver Nuggets basketball. We're pretty market agnostic. We're pretty up to date on what's been going on with this team over the years. I'm, I love Nikola Jokic. I think everybody knows that. Probably not as much as you love Nikola Jokic, but I don't think there's anybody who loves him as much as you. But the one thing I can't figure out, and the, the one thing that I think only you, uh, as someone who's followed the team so closely, can figure out is, where did this mental toughness and resiliency come from? You look at that team, it's not like they're like this grinded out defensive monster of a team. It's not like they have been battle-tested 
before last year when they had two game sevens. And yet they had this steal, this ability to come back. It's the huge part of their identity. Like, where did that come from? I, this is a great question. And first of all, thanks for having me on to talk talk about the Nuggets because there's so many interesting things about this team that I feel like people are going to be excited to kind of learn about them and they're kind of learning about them on the fly through um, this playoff run. But I think you have to credit three different people uh, with the toughness. Number one, Michael Malone. The team takes on, the, the I think, the personality of their leader. And to this point, Michael Malone, I think, has been – leader of this team oftentimes it's a player floor general or the best player or whatever or some, you know a coach in this instance I, I really do think malone is is sort of the um you know been the leader of this team to this point and he's all toughness i mean it's his number one value i would say in 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 life and in basketball and in coaching and he talks about it nonstop. he's critical of the team when they when they don't bring it and it just i think he is such a tough presence that the team has sort of learned that from him as they've kind of grown the second person you have to give this is jamal murray and i know a lot of people know the stories of him growing up you know, dad made him do push-ups in the snow. He kung fu influence on him. He's a big Bruce Lee guy, and he always watch Bruce Lee movies with Jamal and talk about the mental aspect of the game. And I know with a lot of players that can become cliche, or they talk about this. I think with Jamal Murray, you saw this at a very early age when he got into the NBA. He was a mentally tough guy in playing through injuries. Um, you know, back against the wall, whatever it is. So he just he just has an incredible tough mental toughness to him that he plays with. Uh, and then the third one, and people. This is the one I think people will find surprising is Nikola Jokic is an incredibly resilient basketball player. I did a story on this about a year ago. There's this word in Serbian, inat, and it's a fascinating word. It doesn't have a translation in English. It's it's a thing that Serbians believe they possess by nature of their you know bloodline or their culture or whatever. They possess inat. And what inat is is it's this double-edged sword of both spite and stubbornness on the bad end and resiliency on the the positive end. And it's you know, Djokovic in tennis is famous for this. Where the U.S. Open, everybody hates him. They're booing him as they as he plays. That's when he gets his most power. He's down and out. That's when he kind of draws the most inspiration. This sort of like, I, I they uh, they've explained it to me as oftentimes you will want to express your ability to do something when everyone doubts you, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You think about Jokic fouling in the backcourt often to show up a referee. That's the bad end of this sort of stubbornness. Yes, like I'm yes. going to show you. You know, you you have no power over me, referee that missed this call. Um, but so, on the positive end, it's just this incredible belief in this. You don't think I'm good enough for this? I'm gonna. I have something in me you don't quite understand. And I think Jokic's sort of happy-go-lucky personality disguises a lot of that. But I've asked him about this very topic about Inat, and he lights up with it. It's he truly believes that all Serbians have it, and him he has it in spades. That's fascinating, man. That's a. That word and the way that you just described the translation, the idea that there is no relationship to the English language, right. that makes it even better. Because right now what we're seeing, I don't think folks like Mike and I who, who've watched a lot of Nuggets but aren't on the day-to-day -day like yourself on the beat, that's what I've picked up over the last month and a half. And, and part of that, I believe, is the bubble mentality that you just it's just you and your team. You don't yeah. have anyone else. There is no outlet. So you either confide and become – kind of that larger relationship to your leadership, to Malone and Jokic, uh, you know, to Murray, or you lose and you leave the bubble, right? You kind of leave that mental state, not just the physical relationship to where you are. And they've really honed that over. I mean, man, thinking about the Utah series, that feels like 10 years ago now. 
And that was right. amazingly mentally taxing, you know, two weeks of basketball. Um, and yeah. so to, to come from that, maybe to this exact point of, of, of not the word you just used, then refilter it into another seven game series and yeah. an exact identical situation of three, one. I also love the tennis relationship too. I think tennis is up. Uh, oh, there we go again. Tennis, <laughs> tennis reference. And then Adam, <laughs> up there, okay. Uh, is that, is that there is such a, it's such a mental sport and that idea of forgetting the point that happened before because yeah. it's one point and moving on to the next. It's a perfect way to describe the relationship between, Hey, we're down three, one can't win a game. We already lost Yeah, into the next. Um, I think there's a Serbian mentality too. Of look, a lot of these folks, their families, their parents, they grew up in war-torn country. You know, yeah. the, the the kind of the patriarch of Serbian tennis, this guy Tipsarevic, he grew up playing in a hollowed-out swimming pool underground because bombs were going off above. Right. Yeah. That right. relates into the cultural aspect for sure of mental toughness. Don't don't the Nuggets isn't Jokic also part of that Balkan? group that has been hanging out a lot in the bubble yeah oh absolutely and according to uh Jovan buha over at the athletic his uh reporting on it Jokic has been at the center of those sort of the life of the party of those which i find kind of interesting i mean he's just such a charismatic and comfortable in his own skin personality you know um but i think that there's two other things i kind of want to touch on with, with to denver's resolve and especially contrasting that to what i think was a complete lack of resolve from the clippers in this series and one of those is, you know, Denver played in 45 clutch games. You know, there, there were clutch moments, meaning within five points in the final five minutes. That was far and away. It was more than anybody else in the NBA. Those numbers were true last year. I've seen a lot of people over the years say, you know, look at Denver's Pythagorean win-loss or their net rating. It doesn't – it rates out to a team that isn't as good as them. And I, I personally believe from watching this team that while those things are good indicators – there's sometimes teams that just have little personalities that are a little different. And Denver, just for whatever reason, happens to be a team that wins very, very closely, loses big, wins closely. And, and they win a lot of games. They just happen to win them closely. So Denver, I think, refines over the last two years, has refined their process of winning tight games. But the other thing is their identity. And I think this was the big one of the great if you really step back and try to look at this this contrast. I thought this was a team with a great identity and maybe a little bit less talent versus a team with no identity and more talent. And when the teams got pushed against the wall, the Nuggets could fall back on their identity. The Clippers didn't necessarily know what that identity was when there was nowhere to go, and it was just, well, Kawhi, Paul George, try to save us, and it didn't work. Well, I think it's very clear that the Clippers are a mess in ways that we kind of knew and always thought they would overcome. The The element of the Nuggets as an, having an identity is is interesting to me because – I mean, this idea of being pushed back against the wall, like they are self-imposed walls that they are pushing, that have pushed themselves to. I mean, certainly in the Utah series, they got their ass kicked at a couple of those early, early games. It's almost like they need that to actually play their best. Like if you're, if you're a Nuggets fan, like wouldn't you just want the Lakers to go up 3-1 right now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, looks for the better story. And I do think Denver is better as an underdog. I mean, they, they should be. And so there is this idea of, Jokic even said this, I believe at some point when he was asked on the court about, or maybe it was in a post game about this very thing. And he said, I just feel like all of us feel so much more relaxed when we have nothing to lose. And I think you see that in the play. They make shots. They play a little bit looser, a little bit freer. And so maybe there is something to it. And then the other thing too, is you talk about the close games thing. The only other team I can remember having that trend. I remember Dallas for many years with Dirk would outperform their point differential. 
consistently. I think Memphis did too for a slightly different reason. And you point to it as uh, a mental thing. I wonder if it's much more of a just schematic basketball thing, which is the Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic pick and roll two man game has so many options. You know, we talk about the playoffs being like, you need to have a lot, every single possible option teams that are too one dimensional or players that are too one dimensional get figured out. We don't really apply this as much across the board to teams, but if you think about the way Denver plays offense compared to Houston, compared to the Clippers, compared to their style, you know, compared to Milwaukee, compared to uh, even Toronto, I mean, some of the teams that are not out there, I mean, this is a team that does not rely so heavily on any one thing on offense. And then when you get into crunch time, you have the ability to manipulate that two-man game that's been honed over multiple years in so many different ways. And I just think that th- certainly this happened with the Clippers. They just ran out of ways to stop it. You know, they, they had, they had all the counters and that to me is the biggest reason why they would win close games more often, more so than their mental fortitude is just the versatility of that two man action. I think that I a hundred percent agree with everything you just said right there. If you think about that first series, in game six and seven, Denver moved Jokic out of the pick and roll. They moved him off ball. And that's, again, you talk about Houston. They, they're they going to have to win their way. They don't really have another way. And if you take that away, they didn't really have another option. Denver being able to say, hey, Jokic, our, our best player in on every action, what if we draw Gobert out into the corner and run something else? And, and just the ability to adapt and say, okay, well, now Jokic, I know he should be a higher usage player, but hey, if he has to stand out there and take a defender away and, by the way, knock down open shots, that's another thing we can kind of tap into. So I think there's a lot that to that. But the other way, place I would go on this, Denver started out this season, they started out last season really good on the defensive end over the first, I don't know, four weeks, a top defense. And I remember watching it going, you know, they're really good when they play really, really hard. Yeah. And over 82 games, you can't play hard. And some teams are good defensively without playing hard because they have a – rim protector in the back or elite defenders up front or whatever. I don't think Denver has either of those other, you know, Gary Harris, a very good on ball defender, but I, th- I think that this idea of when you have to get 48 minutes of good defense, I don't know that you, ha- how many games you have Denver's pushing the limit. They've already played 14 games in this playoff. So I don't know. At some point they'll probably run out of gas, but I just always thought that they were a, a much better defense than people realized in short bursts. And that again, you get you get yourself into a fourth quarter. They can give you twelve minutes of elite defense. I guess a short burst would include after getting smoked in the first four games of a playoff series. Four and a half. Four I and mean, a half. It's yeah. Funny, but if you really just cut <laughs> off the Nuggets from game the second half of game five, all of six and seven, I mean they were great defensively in that Utah series. If you take out game one of this one, by the way, the Utah Jazz, and I'm not trying to. There's a lot of layers to this Utah Jazz. 65% on pull-up threes for those first four games. I mean, they ran a little bit hot, and on top of that, they were one of the best offenses, I think the number one offense over the last four months of the season. Um, so they they were already a sneaky, very good uh, offensive team. The Clippers, the number two offense. Denver gets smoked in the first one, first game. Since then, they pretty much shut them down. I think a 105 defensive rating over the last six games of the series. That that's I think that's pre- that's pretty impressive. Yeah, we were Mike and I were chatting last night during the game. We actually have a, a text with our other friend uh, Mike Pina. Who and can we? Can Mike you share Pina. real quick uh, what I sent to him at halftime? I don't want to out him. I guess you named him, but what I said, how I said that Denver was going to win, and he thought I was crazy. Uh, correct. Well, halftime of Game Seven. Yeah. 
yeah. It's funny. You know what's funny about that? I my confidence was at ninety percent at the halftime. I mean, it was yeah. Just seeing how the game flew, I was like, Denver has them solved. That's they did. the same this boat. Is, we, is, we agree with you on that, and, uh, and Pinky did because he thought it, it was a Paul George and Kawhi thing. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, Murray and Jokic. Yeah, I mean, if we're being totally transparent, I thought. First quarter, I was like, Denver's definitely winning. And then they just fell apart in the second right. unit with the, they couldn't guard a very simple pistol set. And then right. when Paul George picked up his third foul and the game changed then, then I was like, okay, now I'm back to where I was in the first quarter. But anyway, Ben, continue. I just, I just want to get that out there because yeah. I'm yeah. very rarely right. And yeah. <laughs> Mike was, uh, for sure, you know, he basically thought that at that point they had solved them and that yeah. the defensive liability relationship to or lack of identity relationship the Clippers had essentially capitulated and said we, we're not going to stop what Denver's doing on offense and you could see that I mean obviously it played out like that but specifically the fourth quarter was like yeah. the ultimate polls right it was right. tremendous defense and offensive execution by Denver and basically none of the above from from the Clippers yeah. which was sort of like the ultimate way for this particular series to end yeah. um, it was I just it was like a uh, it's the best. It was a uh, you know almost dramatic irony playing out of like all the things that could go wrong for the Clippers, all the ways that people had talked about like the idea of the switch that doesn't necessarily get to just get turned on your own terms, and Denver right. to decide that they didn't get to turn that switch. And so, yeah, Mike was right about that, and I also think that maybe we we were a little bullish and probably rightfully so that Murray and Jokic in a, a half court set with twelve minutes to play. Not a whole lot of difference between the, you know, the two two superstar pairings. Uh. Uh, and also, you alluded to this earlier, Mike, but um, the way they were doubling, I thought was pretty silly. I mean, you have to pick your poison against the nug- against Jokic because he just he has an answer for everything. But if you hard double him like that with a very obvious over the top, hey, this is where we're coming from, like. He was just so comfortable, and I, I when they did that in the second half to open up, and you go, okay, they're going to keep doing this. I, Denver's going to get open looks. Let's see if they make them, and they started to make them. And that was the crux of Mike's thing: was like they're either going to miss or make their threes, and if they hit their threes, they're going to win the game. Yeah, I think they were what five of twenty in the first half, and they got a lot of good looks. Look yeah. again, I'm not I, I'm not usually right, so just let me have this moment. Um, but I actually, it's interesting you mentioned the double teaming and. and that was that's been a common criticism of how the Clippers played Jokic. It seemed baffling, especially after in the Utah series. It seemed like their plan was single cover him, make him a scorer, play him with Gobert, and it took a little while for Jokic, I think, to be yeah. confident with that jump shot and shoot it and beat that coverage. But what's interesting, a lot of people are looking at that as that was a Clippers failing. Like, what is that scheme? I just think that the Nuggets, the way they play offensively, and this goes back a little bit to this having multiple ways to win, that's a triumph of the team. That's not a triumph of Jokic that they broke that coverage. That's a triumph of they disguise what they want to do really well. They cut extremely well. And so you'll know that's something that, I mean, you don't see as much. in particular. Yeah. They cut really well so that when he is doubled, there is somebody running through the lane. Like I noticed a lot that Kawhi was kind of doing the ignore Jeremy Grant defense for a lot of the game. And I think the idea of that is Jeremy Grant is someone you'd rather get beat by than Jokic. But Jeremy Grant didn't just stand around. He would cut through. That would draw somebody else. And then someone else would be open and Jokic would be able to find them. To me, that the way – I think the Nuggets deserve more credit for making the Clippers look like that. Yeah. Absolutely. I would say, yeah, and and you you're 100 right. This team, the the continuity, and them all kind of just knowing Jokic, 
is a big thing because you saw a lot of those passes the other day were fake pass and then make the pass. And, if you know, just the rhythm. Those guys all know what Jokic is going to do. The defense doesn't always, but they all kind of know, like, oh, I know it. They almost have this thing where it's like, oh, I know he sees me on this cut. He's just doing this or that. And so you're right. It was a team effort. Those guys knocked down shots. But it was, I think, playing into Denver's hands, just sort of – allowing Jokic to sit in the pocket, read the blitz and find the open guy. And, and you're right. Denver did a great job of getting off ball movement that I think opened things up for them. Can you, um, can you tell me a little bit more about what you've seen and, and, and how, well, not just how strong they've played, but ultimately if, if you saw it coming sort of this like multifaceted role player approach they have, everyone that Denver brings in from Craig to Michael Porter Jr. They've all been contributing in more ways than I think people thought about them prior to these playoffs. Yeah. Where, where have you been most surprised? Where have you been most, you know, shocked and pleasantly surprised, I should say, uh, by, the, by the support? Well, if you look at the whole season, I'm really surprised with Jeremy Grant's ability to knock down the three-pointer. I mean, his, his career had been up and down, and now this is two straight seasons in a row where he shot the ball really, really well. Um, and just I think that on some teams you're rewarded if you cut and you're and other teams you're not on some teams, you know, you stand around and watch the stars do their thing and then you kind of get involved here or there and on the Nuggets. I just think that playing with Jokic and also with Murray, who Murray doesn't get enough credit for being an unselfish player himself. He's a scorer. So I think people often equate scores with being selfish, but he, I think, does a very nice job of playing within himself. I just think guys like Gary Harris, Paul Millsap, Jeremy Grant, they always feel like they're involved in the game, and, and they are always involved. They get to run DHOs and pick and rolls, less so than Murray, but they're still involved in it. They know if they make a hard cut, if it works, somebody's going to get an open shot. And I just think that having players with that sort of mentality and ability, it, it lends itself to everybody kind of being at their best. And Grant, of course, coming from a situation where two superstars who – do not do that right. in Oklahoma City. Um, and it took him a little bit of time, I think, to figure out like sort of how to play that way. You know, like he's definitely yeah. he's definitely playing way better now than he was earlier in the season. And now, I mean, now he seems indispensable. Like they, he's a free agent. I don't believe they have bird rights on him. Is that correct? They have like early bird rights. I, I mean, I think so. They gave up a first-round draft pick to acquire him. They, this was When they picked him up the very first day, they said this was not a one-year thing. They want him to be a part of the, the long-term yeah. plan. I mean, he might have played himself into a more expensive contract than they anticipated. The thing with him that's interesting, you mentioned you know being in Oklahoma City and basically just being a spot-up shooter in the corner and then going back on defense. He has been involved much more in a lot of his – they use him off the dribble sometimes, this or that. I think he's a small forward. And I think in particular – I think he's a small forward alongside Michael Porter Jr. in that there's some real strengths and weakness give and take on, between those two that's interesting. Jeremy Grant doesn't rebound the basketball. He's a horrible rebounder for his size and athleticism. Michael Porter Jr. is an elite rebounder, as is Nikola Jokic. So you put the combination of players together, and it just seems to – it really seems to work. And I think that's what you're tapping in here, Mike, is Jeremy Grant early on playing a lot of minutes with the bench, Mason Plumlee, Torrey Craig front court. As the season's gone on, he's become more of the you know the featured player in that first unit, playing alongside both Millsap and Jokic, and it, it, he's just fit very nicely. We don't want to forget his roots either. We could go back five years on this. Yeah, I was a huge God fan. Damn of it! He was on the, uh, the Sixers. Always loved the promise he showed, and ultimately yeah. thought in the right situation that he would flourish. And I yeah. think there's something to be said. I think you hit it on the head, Adam. Like when when your best player is someone who you expect to make the right play whether that's for himself or for you right. as the putter or the open man in the corner 
you know, ultimately what you get is uh, a trust that goes and extends way off of just the offensive sets. It, it, that trust relates to the defensive end, off the court, the way that you kind of, you know, you gel as a team. And, and ultimately, I think it's really interesting to see that a guy like Jokic, who doesn't move at a particularly fast pace or anything like that, has <laughs> pretty stunning athletes on his team. I mean, it's not right. like they're, they're an athletic team. Just so, like you know, it's, I have a theory about this. So Jokic is the slowest mover, but the fastest thinker in the NBA. It just His brain is moving so fast. And to to fully sort of take advantage of how quick that is, you need quick players around him and that's an incredible athleticism. So if you have guys moving fast, Jokic's brain is moving fast, and now you can kind of make that work. So I, I'm all in on this idea of length and athleticism around Jokic being – raising all, all – what is it – raises all boats I, yeah, I feel like that's rising tide lifts all boats yeah, there it is yeah yeah I mean, <laughs> Jokic is also very athletic in ways I mean I've harped on this for a very long time yeah. the like kind of basketball athleticism is very different than yeah. athleticism he had a play the other that last night where it was like a it was a pick and roll I think they had forced it to one side Paul George is coming off towards the middle he had gotten a little bit of a step on whoever was his primary defender I want to say it was Gary Harris and he's getting in the lane, and Zubac is rolling, and George is, tries to do that move that a lot of great ball handlers do, where they sort of are like kind of like up, upping to shoot, and then dropping the ball down to their big uh, to catch and finish. And Jokic kind of went up with him, but at the same time also stuck his right arm down and stole the yeah. ball. Uh, that's a very athletic play. Like there's just yeah. no other way to say it, and it's it's just we don't talk about it that way. But that's incredible athleticism. Now. Adam, I know you have been on Nikola Jokic really earlier than anyone. I mean, I remember you talking about him during his first summer league. First summer league, yeah. And you were like, this guy's going to be really interesting. He's going to be a part of the rotation. I was like, who the hell is this dude? Like, I think you were. Ta- I remember talking to you about it. The wait is finally over. Football is back. Holy crap. Football is back? That, that really snuck up on me. Anyway, you might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get on, the, on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get on, on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all those great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E, all one word. BetOnline, your online sports experts. The Limited Upside Podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. 
like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering limited upside listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post. That means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Maybe I'm mischaracterizing how you feel, but I don't think you've necessarily been as big a Jamal Murray believer from the beginning as you were with Nikola Jokic. What has changed? I assume it has changed, first of all. And what has changed and what have you seen that has indicated how he his game has grown and now you're, I assume, a believer and believe he's worth his contract, that he signed as a leap of faith, all of that. What what has changed for you with Jamal Murray? It's a fantastic question, and it's you're 100% right in that characterization. I really wasn't won over with Jamal until the Utah series. I mean, so this is a very recent sort of conversion. I always thought he was a really good player. Max player, that means you have to win with those two guys. When your team goes all in and gives two max – contracts you either have to move one if it doesn't work out or you have to win with those guys and i just thought i love Jokic. i don't know if murray can be that guy what we saw in this playoffs i think and really what we've seen over the course of the last six months or so has been a a, a very noticeable maturation of him as a person i don't I, this can this, I'm, I'm dancing around some tough things here because i don't i, I think he's a good a good guy you know a good a, a good man or whatever but he's when you watch him from a rookie season, he was really very much a 19 year old, very much a 20 year old, his sophomore season, just as a person, you you know, you kind of, this isn't a knock on him, but you just kind of said like, okay, this isn't quite a guy ready for the, the the role that he sort of takes on with this team. And I just think over the, since the hiatus, I've just seen such a change in his approach, his leadership, the, just just the way he's he's carried himself, even in some of these Zoom calls or what have you, that I thought, okay, I, I feel like there's a, a real maturation process going on. And that culminated for me at the end of game six when he broke down. If you remember, this was as a Utah the, series. Utah series yes. game six. After yes. the, the, the NBA suspended for four days, he comes back and drops 50 points in a must-win game six for the Nuggets. And then immediately breaks down. And it the, what he said in that moment, talking about, how important the issues were for him. But for him, his outlet for this was, I just want to win. Like, this is my role. Sort of, To me, this is how I interpret it. This is my role in the world is like, I'm out here to win and to do this thing that I'm good at as best I can. And just the overwhelming emotion and sort of feeling like that night he accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish in, in that day. And it was just, it, it just was all coming together to me, this mental toughness, this unselfishness, this maturity, and by the way, the basketball things, I mean, he had a, a real inconsistency problem and he still does as a scorer, which I think is kind of common for point guards as all point guards kind of fluctuate between 30 points and 20 points. Um, but not turning the ball over, you look at his turnover rate over in these playoffs, handling the ball at a high level, I think in games five of six of the, the Clipper series, four total turnovers in those two games. Think about how much he had the ball in his hands against great defense. He got the ball where it needed to go. So 
Um, I just think as a player, he's gotten a lot better. He's taken that leap. It's all coming together for him now. His confidence is at an all-time high, and his maturity is at an all-time high. No, certainly also helps, too, that when he wants to defer a little bit those point guard responsibilities, he has the perfect person to do that. You know, I mean, yeah. when he wants to be the scorer, like microwave style in the whatever it was, the third quarter yesterday, putting up, what do you have, 20? Yeah, yeah 20 points in the second quarter, I believe. Twenty Was it 20 or 20? He had more than 20, right? I thought it was 20. Well, 20, okay, maybe it was 20, yeah, sure. Yeah, it felt like, like 100. <laughs> Some of the shots were absurd. When you have 20 points in a quarter – you know, and your primary scoring option, someone's getting you the ball, right? It's not always dribbling up the court. And most of those possessions, I think, started with Jokic as the primary. So it is, it's, it's fascinating to see him play off the strengths. It certainly yeah. helps to have an off guard like Gary Harris, who does not need the touches, but will do right. everything for you on defense. Again, complementary assets make good teams. And Mike said something last night that was interesting to me, which was like, the Clippers don't have or didn't have as good of a bench. They didn't have as good of complimentary role players. They, they, I actually think the way I put it was they don't have any role players. They don't have any role players. That's right. It was like six man or bust. And those six men options <laughs> are 82 yeah. game options. That's 25 yeah. bench in a random night game in, in Dallas, not in a fourth quarter where you need that person to do something other than score. I mean, watch Reggie Jackson. If you ever go back and watch this game, watch when Reggie Jackson checks into this game because he has a look on his face of just like, what am I supposed to be doing out here? Am I, <laughs> am I screen? He, he goes and sets a screen for Paul George at one time and Paul George just kind of looks at him like, what are you doing? And it, it was just so clear. Those guys have skills. They just had no idea how where they fit into the team. And you call on him in game seven for the first time in a game, I think in the third quarter, and he's out there like, what do you want me to shoot? You want You want me to? <laughs> play pick and roll what am, what am i supposed to do right here? yeah i think his first shot was a contested corner three with 14 on the shot clock <laughs> Sounds uh, right. you know yeah i mean and and part of it too is that um it's a little easier to play a role i think when you have again your foundation is a two-man foundation right it's so multi-layered and itself is a combination of multiple skill sets that kind of only work together yeah. uh so i think i mean it's it's very interesting how i mean gary harris had a really poor offensive season but he comes back in game six and suddenly their defense is much better yep. and there's something it's hard to really quantify what he does but in this specific setup with their specific strengths and weaknesses it kind of works i mean this is how the nuggets have been built as a whole um the one piece that I think is for all this time besides those two that has kind of l- floated a little bit above that and who kind of became a lightning rod during this series in a very interesting moment that now can be reframed as a great motivating factor for the team despite it's itself. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> despite itself. I forget who I read. Uh, I think it was a friend of the pod, Louis Keene, on his newsletter. He was talking about how the Clippers never confronted their problems directly and thus mm. they sort of were allowed to fester in a weird way. And I'm talking about when Michael Porter Jr. after game four essentially says that he needs the ball more. They have to get away from Jokic and Murray only. They have to spray it around. And people were like, "What? who are you to say that, Michael Porter Jr.? And his point was like, you know, say what you want about that moment. But it certainly got whatever tensions may have existed out into the open to be resolved <laughs> in a weird way. So it's what, true. It's, it's funny how that works. But in general, where is Michael Porter He's had a very interesting last few months. He's a very interesting character, let's just say, is personally. What what 
is he is he the third pillar? What it seems like there's an interesting push and pull where if Jokic and Murray are sort of the the pillars of the team, he's the kind of the wild card of where they go. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, I'll tell you that I'm as high on on him as I could possibly be as a player, and I was a slow adopter to Murray. Like I said, I'm two weeks into really believing in Jamal Murray. So this, I've always believed in Jokic, not until very recently with Murray, but with Michael Porter, there's to me there's no question about the talent he has. I mean, he has some skills that you can't teach. Not just his being six foot ten, hyper athletic, and a picture perfect jump shot that he he shoots at an incredible rate can shoot over anybody but he's a really good cutter he's a really good offensive rebounder he, he's um you know he knows how to use his length in, in certain aspects like finishing around the rim and he just I, I think he's a natural scorer it's been interesting watching him sort of get integrated into this team because in my opinion at this point he really is just a the team doesn't run a lot of actions for him he's not really he doesn't have he of all the players he doesn't have a role and you were just talking about Gary Harris coming back and how it just felt different I talked to George Carl before the first series. This is another thing George Carl was just right on the money about is he said, Porter's a great player, but do the other players trust him? And sometimes if there's just one player on the court, you don't, everybody doesn't fully trust or have understand what they're supposed to be or where they are. It doesn't matter if they're good or not. It's just, do they, do they fully trust him? And I thought the first three games of that series, Michael Porter Jr. Starting the Nuggets offense looked weird. You have a good offensive player on the court, but it didn't look right. Defensively, it was a disaster. You take him out, and immediately Denver started to look good again. I know they lost game four, but it was a very close game, and then, of course, won five, six, and seven. And so for, for Michael Porter, I think this was just very much a trial-by-fire year for him. Um, I don't expect – going forward, you know, the Nuggets just don't integrate him into the offense in a way that's special. He's like Torrey Craig. He's just – if you're open, you get a kick out, shoot it. Otherwise, cut, rebound, get back on defense. And I think going forward, he's such a dynamic talent that – once Denver can really work him into what they do, the Jamal Murray Jokic two man game with uh, Michael Porter Jr. on the backside, to me, that's an unstoppable offense just waiting, waiting to happen. Well, that's a thousand dollar $64,000 question. I mean, does he even want to be integrated? Will he integrate? There's obvious tension between him and Mike Ballone. It seems like sometimes it's good tension, sometimes it's bad. Watching him play, he kind of is like. He plays like a cat, like kind of following a laser, and the laser is yeah. a ball. Like wherever it is, he's just following it, whether it's good or bad on both ends. Like, yeah. but at the same time, he is, I mean, not to use this old cliche, but he raises their ceiling, you know? There's no question. There's so no it's, question. A, it's, it's such an interesting analog into where the franchise is. Uh, they have a great foundation, it's what brought them back, but, you know, can they get, I mean, I hate to say can they get to the next level because they kind of have, but you know there's so he can be a multiplier or he can take away everything, and it's such a it's going to be so fascinating to watch that dynamic play out over the years. I don't I don't really think he can take anything away because I mean you would just move on from a guy. He'll as long as he's healthy, he'll have some kind of value that you can you can do this or that. But to me, I just look at it and. If you're the Denver Nuggets and you're in Denver, you're never, even with as good as they've played, I just don't think you're getting free agents. You have to hit on players like this. Michael Porter Jr. has to become the third, the legitimate third star that forms a big three for Denver. And the other pieces can be the role players that kind of fill in the gaps. Michael Porter Jr. has that kind of talent. In my mind, if he's a health, if he's healthy, 
he should be a 25 point per game scorer in this league in short order within within a couple of seasons because he just is that good of a shooter. He can get his shot off at any time he wants, and he gets enough points off of rebounds and cuts and other things that he's just hyper-efficient. Maybe part of this too, Adam, is what you mentioned with Murray. When, when he was 19, he was a 19-year-old. Uh, I think there's a lot of the maturity relationships to not having any real college experience, being the number one recruit in America when you're in high school. Knowing that's who you are, having the back injuries, falling in the draft, et cetera, et cetera, into a team where you know there's a lot of success already for you know for him not being a massive part of it. And I'd imagine when he was 18 years old, he assumed he'd be drafted by some shitty team. Absolutely. I mean, he's yeah. been like the the guy his entire life. Like he's been a star. So this has always been interesting. Plus, I assume that Jamal Murray did not believe that that COVID-19 was a hoax at 19. Uh, (laughs) But other than that, yes, I agree with you. I can't say this for certain, but, you know, he was late arriving to the bubble. I presumably because he had gotten COVID-19, as many players in the Nuggets roster did. But um, so it's especially bizarre coming from (laughs) – Look, the guy has put his foot in his mouth, I think, a lot. I don't know that he's a bad guy. I think he's certainly the AAU, as you mentioned. He has YouTube videos of him in eighth grade saying next Michael Jordan. Like he, he definitely grew up with that, and he has a lot of that. But Michael Malone has made every player on the roster earn it. You remember, Mike? Nikola Jokic came off the bench his sophomore season. Mm-hmm. Jamal Murray was sat in fourth quarters to Jameer Nelson his sophomore season. Like These guys, all of them... Did, weren't just handed the keys. The only player that was handed the keys was Emmanuel Moutier and Denver, and it went terribly. And I think Denver <laughs> learned from that and said, you know what, we don't have to, we don't have to give guys thirty minutes a night to make them develop. We can have them develop in, in small minutes. And Michael Porter, I think, is talented enough that on most teams, if he was on the Atlanta Hawks, he's playing thirty minutes a night and maybe leading them in scoring. He's not. He's on the Denver Nuggets. And Michael Malone this year has been really tough on him. But the question is. How do you get him from where he is now to playing 30 minutes a night where he's happy? And that's going to be a tough, tough thing for Mike Malone. But he's handled those those types of things very well with this team so far. Can I, can I I'm pray to look, man, this is your call, but I'd love to kind of get Adam's thoughts on on the next series a little bit. I don't oh, know. yeah, definitely. I, Adam, can you uh, – we'll start broad here, big umbrella. What are your thoughts on the relationship to the, the matchup with the Lakers? And then tell me about the X factor for you in this series. Say the Nuggets are winning this. Why do they win the series? Man, I, that's a tough one because I honestly think this is a really, really tough matchup for the Nuggets. Um, there, there's only one player in the NBA, one, one big in the NBA that I think Jokic has not fully solved, and it's Anthony Davis. He's 17 points in a fourth quarter on Joel Embiid and a game winner right in his face. You know, Carl Anthony Towns, same thing. Like he's... Jokic has gone at every big, even Rudy Gobert, who made him work for it, but still 26 points on 50-50-80 shooting in that series. Anthony Davis is different. He's athletic, he's long, he's mobile, he's skilled. On both ends of the court, Jokic has struggled to guard him when he's been you know, matched up with him. And on the other end, Anthony Davis makes him work enough. Jokic still can get his numbers, but you know, if you can reduce your other best player by 10%, that's a win. And he does that, so... This is a really tough matchup just by virtue of your best player might have a disadvantage in his matchup. And that's not even, and that's their second best player. That's before you get to LeBron James. So um, I, I think this one, it's great for Denver to be in this position because if Jokic is going to lead a team to a title, if Murray's going to lead a team to a title, they, you, you have to 
what better sort of training ground is there than beating the one guy and the team that sort of designed to beat you? You have to kind of earn your stripes here. And I expect my expectation for the series is that the Nuggets are going to learn in this series, maybe not succeed in this series. Good hedge. Good hedge. That's <laughs> an O's for you, man. I know you yeah. closely. What are, what are the matchup situations that kind of pop for you? I other think, than yeah, the thing I worry about is that, I mean, in contrast to the Clippers who had amazing defensive talent and a lack of cohesion that the Nuggets were able to exploit, yeah. the Lakers, especially with the way they defend the perimeter, are the most coordinated, the most together defense in the league right now. I mean, there they're really, are three really good ones because um, both of the ones in the East are like that. But I yeah. think the Lakers, with what they did to Lillard and what they did to Harden, with all the stuff they did on the backside, with the creativity of their traps, with the discipline of closing out in certain players, I have a really hard time seeing Jamal Murray having a big series. I just think this is going to yeah, be a real too. challenge for him. And so then what it comes down to is – yeah, Jokic has got to win that matchup for them to have a chance, and that is with Anthony Davis. That's a huge challenge. The one yeah. possible silver lining is that Davis has so far done most of his damage kind of bullying smaller or shorter players in these po- playoffs, whether he's the four or the five, because of he played against Houston. You know, He would just sort of be this foul magnet, and he would just be running constantly downhill – And then he would then sort of play in a little bit of space and take care of them. He hasn't really shot a ton of threes. He hasn't really played a whole lot on the perimeter. I think that Jokic, with his style of play and with Davis doing that, may have a better chance at limiting him than anyone else in a previous series. And if that happens, that will put a lot of pressure on LeBron. And I do think that, I mean, as... Kawhi Leonard can tell you the Nuggets do have a lot of bodies. Jeremy Grant did a great job on Kawhi. They have Craig and Gary Harris to hand to help. I do think that this will not be the easiest series for LeBron if on offense. Um, and then you also throw in that the Lakers get so many points off turnovers. Right. The Nuggets. That's the key. The Nuggets, other than that first quarter, have been very good at taking care of the ball. You know, I, I'm I'm kind of presenting a very rosy picture um, because I don't think that the Nuggets can just rely on like outsmarting the Lakers with all this cute right. movement and all right. this stuff. But it may be a little more competitive than you would think at first glance because I know that the Lakers have really owned the Nuggets in the regular season in this matchup. You know, I think they did they win every single one of those games. This no, year. Denver Denver won one when LeBron didn't play. Okay. They played once, I believe, what, like a, right before the All-Star break? I remember that. I thought that was a fantastic game. It was That was one of those ones where it's frustrating to be in Denver because that was a overtime win for the Lakers. And I th- it was just such a great battle back and forth. The yes, I remember game. that. And it was coming out of that it was the lakers dominant and i think that was the for the one seed like they, they were like right there even and mm-hmm. they could take the lead and like oh just clearly the head and shoulders above the rest and i'm thinking man that was an overtime an overtime game <laughs> I yeah denver, i thought so, denver to me my takeaway was hey denver can play with the best team in the nba yeah. there's no no right they, they, that was also true of the matchup in denver in early december right i believe that was like one of the lakers first big road games and so the right. big question was can the lakers do what they're doing at home on the road and then they won by i think like six right it was like a five or six point game a good game 
and everyone's like, oh, yep, they can. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a discussion. So, you know, I think this series might be more competitive than it looks. I also think, by the way, and this may, may help Denver get a game. Boy, is it going to be some sticker shock going from the way Houston plays to the way Denver plays. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, totally. Uh, that might give the Nuggets an advantage early in the series. They kind of have to win, I think, the first game to really make this competitive. And the Lakers will have been off for a full week, I believe, right? Six days. Yeah, so, yeah they be, they'll be off. Have been off for quite a while. The, you know, spreading out, playing if, if they do go small, nicest, but they've had success going big against Denver. I mean, Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee also present problems for Jokic just with their athleticism, but uh, and strength, but. Um, if they spread things out, I mean, Denver, the one thing Jokic really struggles with, and it's the thing that the Nuggets that, that by extension struggle with is the spread pick and roll. The Lakers don't have a lot of great shooters. They do have some lineups they can go to that you can expect guys to knock it down. But I do wonder if they're going to close like that and make Jokic guard Anthony Davis, LeBron James in space with that pick and roll and an athletic rolling big a smart point guard who can throw those skip past the corner. Denver's kind of that that's a tough that's a tough defense for Denver. Now, Denver will probably hard rotate and dare guys to make shots, but um, you know, we'll see. What what are the lineup rotation or like changes that you see Malone making for this series as opposed to what we just saw with the Clippers series given kind of the very different uh, relationship to the way the Clippers and Lakers play? Well, I wonder if Paul Millsap's going to play a whole lot. And when they're in those double big lineups, for sure he will. But whenever they kind of stagger out of that and they have some smaller play, Kuzma's ever at the four, you know, or th- those type of lineups, I just – Millsap I don't think has a role. He's not going to stop LeBron. He's not going to be that backside line of defense that, you know, helps save Denver when it's LeBron and Anthony Davis. So if he's just covering guys on the perimeter, you might see them try a little bit more length out on the court and, um, you know, maybe maybe you run to a little bit more smaller lineups than what you, you've seen so far. But o- overall, I don't know. I, again, I think this is a learning s- series for Denver. I think I don't think they're approaching it that way, but I think they're going to try to do what they do. You saw after the game <clears> – <throat> Jamal Murray and Jokic were asked, like, well, what do you do now to game plan for them? And they said, well, they got a game plan for us. That's, And I really think that's the best way that they can beat them. Not worry about altering yourself, but, hey, let's see if they can stop what we do. And if they can, then we'll adjust. I would probably recommend that to Malone that Porter's minutes overlap heavily with the the non-LeBron minutes because if LeBron sees Porter in the game, that's just he's going to target him every single play. That was like the one thing the Clippers didn't do that was people yeah. were wondering like, wait, why aren't you – you have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Like why aren't you doing it? And you re, you forget that that there is an art to target a player. Like it doesn't just – it doesn't just happen automatically. But LeBron's got that art down. So I would – probably recommend limiting Porter's minutes with LeBron, especially in high leverage defensive moments, playing more with like that AD and Rondo lineup. Yeah. I, one thing I'll say about Michael Porter Jr. is I think he wants to be great. Like, I think he's a very driven player, a young young player. Not everyone, you know, not every young prospect is, especially the talented ones. I think he's truly driven and, Part of this is, you know, part of me wants to see him go guard LeBron because sometimes you have to see and people have talked so much about his defense and how bad I think it's the best thing for him. Hey, you're a great score. You're a great prospect in the in the playoffs. There's nowhere to hide. And if LeBron is if you're switched on to LeBron, everybody's laughing about how hopeless you are out there. To me, that's young players sometimes have to experience that you, you are all in on the learning. And I, and I like that. <laughs> yeah. What was this? What was the Serbian word that? uh Inat, Inat, yeah, Inat. you are you're not unlearning. 
Very stubborn <laughs> as to this is what you have to do. <laughs> is that the correct usage? <laughs> I don't think so, but you know what? We'll roll with it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think it might be a competitive series in large part because, I mean, it's interesting you make that point about Porter, too, because that was, I mean, Portland put Carmelo Anthony on LeBron for a similar reason. You would think that the answer to, you know, you want to go at Carmelo because he's a bad defender, but there is something about playing against LeBron that raised Carmelo's energy level mm. and it, it is worth noting that it's work for mike porter <laughs> i don't know if that's good <laughs> that might <laughs> that might not be exactly right but i mean had, was porter targeted as badly after the first four games of the utah series i think i, I almost wonder if that humbled him a little bit well he was targeted but he, he got better and this right and people maybe didn't give credit for because he's still not not good but he was a disaster in those first three three four games he they started to not switch him and they were having him show and recover harder Jokic was playing up so they couldn't get downhill the Denver adjusted a little bit but he also just I I thought was much more dialed in in large part because he had to know every time down court their coach is yelling and pointing and they're saying okay now come over here and then they cook him so yeah at a certain point you either you either just you know, tuck your tail between your legs and hide, or you try to do your best. And he got a little bit better, I thought. Yeah, and to your point about the spread pick and roll, the guy that really hurt the Clippers or the Nuggets in that game seven was Lou Williams, a high-scoring scoring guard. And Donovan yeah. Mitchell the same way. The Lakers, as great as yeah. LeBron is, he is not a high-scoring scoring guard in that ilk. So yeah. I wonder if maybe that will – it will be a different challenge and maybe the spread pick and roll – will not expose Jokic as much because it seems like those are the types of players that he cannot contain. It's like the Donovan Mitchells, yep. the Kemba Lou Williams, the Kemba yep. Walkers, the, um, I'm trying to, I mean, yeah, the, the Damian Lillards, if they had played Portland or um, those types of players, maybe, I mean, look, LeBron's better than all of them, obviously. I'm not saying, oh, it's a yeah. good thing we got to see LeBron, but, but it's maybe a different it, type. Yeah, you're yeah. Right. it's a different type. Yep. Um, is, is, there, is there any part of you that's sad that you're not going to be able to have the Pepsi Center be filled with Nuggets fans for this? Well, so the thing about this is you have to understand the Nuggets in my life, I'm 36 years old. They've made the Western Conference Finals two times. This is now three. All three of those times have been against the Los Angeles Lakers. Magic Lakers, Kobe's Lakers, now LeBron's Lakers. Every time they've lost. Um, so this is familiar territory. And by the way, this is true of every arena, but it's especially true for whatever reason. Colorado is a transplant city. Our Denver is a transplant city, and it's very heavily, uh, you know, people coming from California. Those are Lakers home games. The Lakers would have had seven home games in this series if they would have played <laughs> it. They would have been so crazy. Denver has great fans. It's just the Lakers are just everywhere, yeah. and they have money <laughs> yeah, coming so from California. Yeah, so I hear. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. I wasn't really thinking about the transplant relationship to fandom. But, uh, it, I mean, look, maxing out what they're doing right now in the bubble, and this is something I just – I have so much intellectual curiosity for for how this has played out, which teams have excelled, which coaches have excelled. I mean, I think one of the best things we've seen in this – you know, you watch Mike Malone sort of in the post game and the way the team has embraced him. It feels like more than a lot of coaches, he's one of the guys. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, and it's the culture, and this is where people actually have to give the Cronkies credit for this. And Michael Malone referred to this, by the way, after this last game. Cronkies not known for being very you know, great owners or involved owners. Mm-hmm. The one thing that they've done that I think has been great, they gave a very long runway to a young coach and a young GM. 
you remember Kevin Artovitz, who I think is a great reporter, great writer, really enjoy his stuff. Back in 2015, he wrote a scathing piece on the Denver Nuggets front office saying they don't know what they're doing. They're not any good. Look at this contract they gave Kenneth Freed. It's an illegal contract, and they, mm-hmm. they fell on their face because of it. And he was right. If that was the Phoenix Suns, they might not have made it out of that season. Michael Malone leads that Nuggets roster. They are in the playoffs all year, and then the last two weeks they blow it, and then they end up not making it in 2018 in Game 82. That's you know Charlotte Hornets. Maybe that Michael Malone doesn't survive that. You say, oh, we we were a playoff team, we didn't make it. They've given a long runway. They've stuck with their players and tried to really develop and create this continuity uh, from front office to the to the, to the players. And I think that is kind of what you're seeing is. This isn't some coach they've been with for 12 months. This is a guy they've all – this is the only coach most of them have ever known. This whole experience is is as much of a family-like atmosphere as I think you can have in professional sports. I know that's a cliche, and I don't want to overstate it, but as much as you can have in an NBA team. Yeah, and the bubble drives family. I mean, it, it, you have your team. They are your family. A few folks are able to come in eventually. but Ooh, it's funny. Oh, that's right. Mike Malone gets to have his family now. He had yeah, that whole yeah, rant. Exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine, though? I mean, seriously. So I was actually just talking to somebody with the Nuggets today inside the bubble, and I, there was a video last night of Jamal and, and Jokic hugging, and it was like just an incredible embrace, very European embrace, right? A head hug, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and we're talking about that moment, and he said, you know, the one thing you don't that nobody seems to really understand unless you're here is just how weird this bubble is and how, like, extra emotional everything is. And he's like, so, like, all we have is each other and nothing to do. So it's like everybody, you're either getting closer or farther apart. And he said, for our team, we've gotten a lot closer and you can kind of see it in them. You saw that dichotomy just play out in this series. It felt like it <laughs> was ready to leave and one team wanted to stay for as long as they yeah, could. Totally. And, and you see it with Miami too in the East. I mean, that's a team that's very culture driven, very yeah. kind of close together. And Boston too, really. I mean, those, really, yeah. those two teams are both sort of, they have a coach who's been there for a long time, a very defined style play. And really, I mean, certainly in Miami's case, very emotional stars. Yeah. You know, yeah. Look, I think, I think the same thing for Boston too. I, I think there's a lot of parallels. I think uh, in terms of uh, like, look, Jalen Brown's been incredibly outspoken and yeah. whether or not he's quote unquote leader of that team, they have guys who have something to say for themselves and stand by who they are. Campbell Walker, Marcus Smart in different ways, but just they're willing to be vulnerable in a certain way. It seems like, I mean, Brad Stevens, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, th- those guys have been together for so long. It's the same thing. And I know you add a big piece in Kemba Walker, but it's still there's a culture that was established. There was a trust and relationship that has kind of grown. And same with Miami. Jimmy Butler's the added piece, but a lot of those guys, they kind of grew. And you're right. What, the continuity of culture is the thing that you're noticing with all three of those teams, I think. And then the Lakers are kind of this X factor. Yeah, right. And LeBron is the culture into himself. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah he, he, they, they basically imported an entire culture in one yeah. season. They, they are the most together teams are the ones that are left. Um, and this obviously was the big problem with the Clippers is that it's just not Kawhi dropping into a team that already has a culture. This is now he's the culture setter and that's, but we're not going to talk about the Clippers too much. Uh, on Mike Malone. Cause I have to say this, Mike um, and Adam, you know, this probably, but he is um, beyond from my alma mater, Loyola in Baltimore. Oh, nice. Yeah. Don't have a lot of people in the professional sports world. Turns out there you go. Jesuit school in Baltimore, not a lot of NBA people or other professional athletes as we don't have a football team or baseball team. If the Nuggets win the championship, 
And I, I really, really hope they do. I hope they beat the Lakers. I hope they win the title here. They will, uh, are the team I am rooting for. And there's other reasons why I'm not rooting for Miami or Boston. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that is to say that that would be the the, be- the best sports accomplishment from anyone from my university today. And nice. So really pulling for Mike Malone. He's up in the bangers at our, our tiny Reeds Arena in, in Maryland, a small Division One program. And so uh, big yeah. fan. Have been for a long time. Didn't he average like three points? I think we looked up his stats on basketball reference one time. It was like three <laughs> points, 0.2 assists. That's right. That's right. Wow. I mean, like. Prior to him, Skip Prosser was the biggest name to come through Loyola, and he used that to go to Xavier and to Wake. And so, you know, we don't have a long, illustrious, illustrious list of uh, yeah. players or coaches, but uh, rooting for Mike Millen. Yeah, I was going to say, hasn't Mike Millen already accomplished more than anyone that you've gone oh, yeah. to school? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's yeah. funny. He's on the Mount Rushmore of Denver Nuggets coaches. I mean, it's, and it's like not even a close case, you know. I mean, that, that's – speaks a lot to the 55 years of Denver Nuggets basketball. What is the Mount Rushmore? Is what Doug Moe, obviously number one. Let's see if you can Car- get him. Yeah. George Carl. Um, Dan Issel. No, you don't think so. Um, no, Larry no. Brown coached there them for a while, right? There it is. Larry. Yeah, Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was for a couple. He was the That's ABA good, coach. That's a pretty good Mount Rushmore though, to be honest with you, Doug Moe, George Carl, Larry Brown, and now Mike Malone. That's not, that's not bad. Doug, remember the name, remember Moe, the name, uh, two classics. Uh, do you remember the name Bill Ficky? No. Interim head coach, interim of the Nuggets at one point in the, in the 80s. Ficky, F-I-C-K-E. His, uh, uh, his what year was this? Time. Yes. Uh, maybe 86, 7, something in that range. Late 80s. It wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been then. Mo was still the coach. I think I think it was for like a small period of time, maybe during a health-related thing. Oh, uh, uh, okay. okay. That makes yeah. sense. Look, yeah, right. Look up uh, Bill Ficky. Big Bill, we call him. He runs a big pizza place in Denver. It's like Big Bill's Pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah for sure. They always do their – they do a, an event there every single year. The Nuggets and <laughs> Nuggets organization does. There you go. Well, right. That probably help. explains why. <laughs> well, back to Loyola, the better guys. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> Doug Moe, the Mike D'Antoni before Mike D'Antoni. That's how I always think of him. Even way funnier, though. You know, that's that's the thing people don't realize. I mean, he was. Oh, it, it's like a bygone era of ABA style where the games were meant to be fun. And then, yeah, you know, he had he had the. Uh, there's so many great Doug Moe stories. One of my favorites. There was a snowstorm. He decided, oh, the plane's probably not going. And they called him up and said, hey, where are you? We're holding the plane. We're trying to get out. He goes, okay, I'll be there. He shows up in his jeans and flannel, coaches the game in that in Salt Lake, and then flies back. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, can you imagine a coach showing up to an NBA game in a flannel and jeans and just coaching from the sideline? I'm now imagining. I I don't know how much WNBA you're watching, but uh, the the Connecticut Sun coach has shown up with some very interesting outfits during the playoffs. (laughs) Kurt Miller. Um, I'd love to see Malone in one of those. Those fits. Yeah, D- Doug Moe was like the famous for running like no plays and running just that same offense and just trusting his players. I just remember. Yeah. Uh, fun deep dive. Anyway, this has been great. The Denver Nuggets are a great story. Um, I, again, like I, we're not making some sort of like massive statement by saying we're only talking about the Nuggets on this show. You know, I think there's plenty of other places to talk about the Clippers. They're obviously a huge story. But this is a great story and this is a great very interesting team. They play such fascinating basketball. Like from a, just a basketball nerd perspective, I just love watching them play. And Adam, you've been there from like ground negative twenty. What's below yeah. ground zero? Yeah. Uh, or maybe not ground. You know what I'm trying to say. I, I know what you're trying to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the ground floor. That's what I was I'll, going for. Well, I'll just say this, man. 
Doc Rivers compared Jokic to Kim Olajuwon. Greg Popovich compared him to Larry Bird. I think people are starting to slowly see that's not the craziest comparison. And you were there on the first summer league. Very first one. Very first summer league. You, you really I, I, I will say that I said uh, he could be that kind of player or he could end up being, I, I can't, uh, Pero Antich. I said, I, I said something <laughs> like low-end Pero Antich. And so uh, I, hedged my, I hedged my bet pretty hard there. <laughs> in my so, defense, Pero Antich had a great year, though, in 2015. Very, very solid year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was his year with the, the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks, yeah. Still mad about that series against the Wizards. Now sure. that we've had a Pero Antich and a Doug Moe um, sighting in this podcast, I think that's um, Yeah, around. we did good. Yeah, we'll, we'll let the rest of the NBA media who loves to talk about Los Angeles basketball, first take, et cetera. They can talk about the Clippers. I'm glad this was a Denver only pod. And, and Adam is the perfect person to have had on for this. And I think you were the first uh, summer preview we did on on the Nuggets many years ago on this podcast, uh, who we had on. So the perfect person yeah. to come. The glory days right now. Thanks, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, you want to plug anything about uh, the DMVR, uh, what you guys do? Because I'm sure a lot of people don't know about it. I think the coolest thing for people maybe that are just casually into the Denver Nuggets, if you're a Denver Nuggets fan, check out the DNVR. We have all the sports there. But if you just casually want to see what's going on, we do post games live on YouTube and Periscope after every single game. We have a studio set up. I mean, it's a it's a really cool, in my opinion, or really it's one of my favorite things I've ever gotten to, to work on and um, analyzing the game, doing all kinds of cool stuff. And you've got your podcast with George Carl. Uh, I got to prepare for that. Yeah, yeah. Keeping it one thousand with George Carl. And go check that out. Um, and also, if you're a WNBA fan, check out. We did a podcast earlier this week with Matt Ellentuck and Sabrina Merchant on the WNBA playoffs. Pretty awesome start to those. Did you see the shot that Shea Petty hit uh, to be, for the for the Mercury to beat the Mystics? Go look that up. That was that was nuts. That buzzer beater. This is a player who was like cut by the Mystics during the season, hitting a game winning three at literally at the zero 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 in the corner to knock them out of a single elimination game. That was heartbreaking for me as a Mystics fan. Just heartbreaking. You got your title last year, Mike. You'll be okay. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. <laughs> and that's Connecticut Sun, who I said are gonna the most dangerous team in the tournament. Sure showed it last night, so Anyway, check that out. That's some early in this week. This uh, We'll be back next week, presumably, to talk about one of the conference final series, if not both. Until next time, friends, this is the Limited Upside Podcast. Peace.